0: Listener, perhaps you're familiar with the term movie magic. Well, in today's episode, we're examining an adjacent concept, movie alchemy. Can a filmmaker compose and assemble a procession of images and then layer those images with sound and words in such a way that can make his audience think, feel, and touch something beyond the veil? Can movies become a kind of ritual magic? If you make enough people think, feel, and most importantly, see the same thing at the same time can one crack open the door to a new reality. The filmmaker we are looking at today to help us explore the idea of cinema as ritual magic is the British director Nicholas Rogue. Rogue got his start as a cinematographer, working for nearly 23 years as a director of photography before directing his first film. He was a second unit cinematographer on David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia and then hired as the lead cinematographer on Dr. Zhivago. However, uh, Rogue's creative vision clashed with that of Lean, and eventually he was fired from the production and replaced by Freddie Young, uh, who got sole credit. Um, But I think it's his start as a cinematographer that I think leads to the primacy of the image in his work. All other considerations secondary. Crew, plot, actors, expendable. Rogue in his movies is going to show you singular images that in the right context and right order produce an unshakable feeling that one is communing with or being acted upon by an occult power. Not in any nefarious sense, but more in the feeling that he is cracking open the door to if not a new reality, then emotional and esoteric truths hidden in this one. Starting with Performance in 1970, starring James Fox and Mick Jagger, which he co-directed with the Scottish painter-turned-filmmaker Donald Campbell, Uh, which was his first movie and his first foray into X-rated films, of which he would make several, one of which today also achieved the X rating upon release. And I should note that horniness and sex are a big part of his movies and the ritual magic process. He is... Collecting orgone like a motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rogue's films are known for having scenes and images from the plot presented in a disarranged fashion, out of chronological and causal order, requiring the viewer to do the work of mentally rearranging them to comprehend the storyline. One quote I have here is that they seem to shatter reality into a thousand pieces and are unpredictable, fascinating, cryptic, and liable to leave you wondering what the hell just happened. Rogue is probably best known for his, uh, the next movies he made after performance, which include Walkabout, Don't Look Now, and The Man Who Fell to Earth. But in today's episode, we're looking at two very hard-to-define movies of his from the 1980s. In the first, we have Eureka, which stars the great Gene Hackman in a movie literally about alchemy. It's about gold. Gene Hackman stars as a gold prospector who strikes it rich and then retires to an island he owns in the Bahamas and lives totally at peace for the rest of his life. <laughs> Not quite, but then we're going to be talking about insignificance, an impressionistic portrait of the 20th century about Albert Einstein getting horny for Marilyn Monroe, <laughs> and lastly, these are the two of three Nicholas Rogue films that are all been used by the musician Jim O'Rourke as titles in a trilogy of albums. The third being Bad Timing. So, Hessa, let's dive into Nicholas Rogue. So, to begin, I'll ask you, uh, what do you make of Rogue and the occult power of images in his movies? I, I love
1: Rogue. I especially loved The Man Who Fell to Earth, which was like one of my favorite movies in high school. I watched it like weekly and I thought it was so sick. I love Don't Look Now, which is like still one of my favorite movies. And yeah, he really has a way with like color and montage and really color especially. I find like movement and fractured images. It's really... There's no, there's no one, no one doesn't like him. Truly,
0: we could probably do a whole episode on the first five minutes of Don't Look Now, which are like one, one of the most stunning openings to a movie. That uh, uh, we, uh, we could
1: do a whole episode on the last two minutes of
0: Insignificance. Honestly, yes. <laughs> oh my God, quite a stunning ending to that movie. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, like I, I, I guess with just Rogue, like I, I think he's, I think he's singularly underrated as like one of the most visionary filmmakers of the 20th century, and. Like yeah, with him, it's just it's for me. It's about it's about sex and like power and like wh- how, what he uses to communicate in his movies. And have you had you seen Eureka or Insignificance before today?
1: No, I had never seen either of them or even really heard of them, honestly. Which well, I was, was pretty shocked by because I've seen like a l- most of his other movies. I think.
0: Two other men. It was the end of the world. To Jack McCann, it was the end of the rainbow. Didn't earn the gold, Jack. You took it from nature. You raped the earth. I found it. <gasps> the true story of a man richer than Getty, stranger than Hughes.
1: This is only a man. A man is made up of desires, understands his
0: desires, you understand the man. <laughs> the world's richest man. He must sign. Because we have to build. There's no deal with Jack McCann. The truth is, you want me, you want my soul. I don't believe in chance. The moment Jack McCann discovered gold, he died. And that moment lasted a lifetime. Gene Hackman, Rutger Hauer, Teresa Russell, Mickey Rourke, Joe Pesci, in a Nicholas Rogue film, Eureka! Well, to, to, to jump into uh, Eureka, which we're talking about first, uh, the plot of this movie is based on a real-life murder of a, uh, a man named Sir Harry Oaks. It was a famous murder that took place in the Bahamas in the 1940s. Harry Oakes was a self-made Canadian millionaire who uh, was granted the title of Baron in uh, the British territories by the, I believe, the Duke of Windsor, the former King Edward VIII, who had abdicated the British throne. Uh, he was murdered in, uh, under mysterious circumstances, and a subsequent trial, trial ended with an acquittal. Uh, it says here, Oakes was murdered sometime after midnight on July 8th, 1943. He was struck four times behind the left ear with a miner's handpick to disguise the wounds from a silver ice pick and was then burned all over his body using insecticide, with flames being concentrated around his eyes. His body was then sprinkled with feathers from a mattress. When Oaks was discovered, the feathers were still being gently blown over his body by a bedroom fan, which is just about the most Nicholas Rogue way to be murdered, uh, which he captures quite memorably in uh, Eureka.
1: Well, Will, I don't want to correct you, but I, in my bit of research I did, this film is actually based, quote, based on a line from the poem The Spell of the Yukon by Robert W. Service. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's the line? There is... Um, I have the entire poem here in my notes, and I, I think they say the line at the very end. Um, but this this movie has a real acid casualty kind of magic to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think you can see... You could picture these, like, screenwriters... Um, like doing too much acid and reading a poem about a gold prospector from 1850 and being like, holy shit, dude, this is like just like this is like that murder, too, you know? And like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, have a, I have a quote here from Rogue about Eureka. He says he says here that I wanted to make a film about ecstasy, the many forms of ecstasy, ecstasy in individual people and ecstasy is the mystic sense of life how our actions are connected to everything and everyone around us. It's not a mystery film. It's not a thriller. And I hope you can't just put it into a slot. There isn't a slot to put it in. To do so would make it a thing it isn't. And yes, I think that that sums it up. This is a movie about the ecstasy of gold, the ecstasy of flesh, and it is a very hard to define and pin down movie. But... It has um one of the most like memorable opening twenty minutes of any movie I've ever seen. Oh my god. Um,
1: the opening is unreal. It like I, I I was blown away. My jaw was on the floor for like the first twenty minutes of this movie.
0: Uh the, the first twenty minutes of the movie follows uh, Gene Hackman before he strikes at Rich. And it's like the nineteen the nineteen twenties in like the absolute frozen tundra of Alaska and contrast that with most of this movie takes place on a tropical island in the bahamas but i mean like like in the imagery that we see in the opening 20 minutes is is the imagery of alchemy like we see fire water earth and and hear the wind quite a bit but the first thing we see in the movie is uh, G- Hackman is uh fighting with a man and a woman in like you know over like a, a tent in the middle of nowhere in like the frozen wastelands of Alaska, and we he 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 screams at them, uh I don't need partners, and he says over and over again what becomes his mantra in this movie that is repeated over and over again, which is I never earned a nickel from another man's sweat. Yeah, and
1: it's used it's used magnificently, and actually the the um it really. Like, explodes at you from, this, from the opening credits. It's like the first two seconds, there's like a woman screaming murder, and like they're f- Gene Hackman and this guy are like fighting over a, a knife. And just because this guy's like, no, we'll split it 50 50, and
0: Gene Hackman's like, fuck you. <laughs> I think the first thing you see in the movie is like gold dust flickering in total darkness like almost like stars in our universe and then you see the planet earth itself and it's it's imagery that's returned to over and over again in the uh in the suicide that we see very early in the movie and like the sort of the swirl of gold dust snow fireworks it's just these kind of like like motes of dust like cast in a light beam flickering around and it has this like as you said acid casualty really psychedelic quality to his movies that like you know like um that, that elevates like, oh, this is about like some crusty gold prospector or whatever. It's like, no, the first 20 minutes, 20 minutes of this movie are just like a tableau of like heaven, earth, alchemy, and like man in the universe, basically. The elements, Kabbalah, it's like yeah. crazy. <laughs> um, so after after uh, delineating his uh, his uh, his policy on partners, he uh, sort of rambles, he sort of stumbles into this like ramshackle ghost town and retreated to... Immediately, almost the first part of this movie, one of the most unforgettable and disturbing images I think I've ever seen in a movie, which is that mm-hmm. he comes across, it's like this freezing fucking town. And in front of the, like, the, the claims office, he sees this man with this like frozen, haunted smile on his face. And he's barefoot. He, his just bare feet are out, and he's just smiling the look of death. And he just looks at him, and he goes like, what are you smiling about? And he says, the end. And then he just takes out a gun, sticks it in his mouth, and blows the top of his head off. In like but like to, to to describe it that way really doesn't do justice to the way yeah. Rogue does this. You see like it's you the you really top have of to this guy's it. skull fly off and it like, it's in, like, in like the match same
1: cuts. S- there are so many awesome match cuts in this movie. Like there's they match cut that with like fireworks exploding and like yeah. more gold dust scattering and then the blood like spraying all over the wall behind him. And it's it's
0: really insane. And then, like as, as he sees that rather disturbing scene, he sort of like uh, you know uh, trudges off elsewhere. And then Rogue shows it to you again. Yeah. You see it twice. <laughs> he just like in case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to give you another shot of fireworks exploding as the top of this guy's skull shoots off like a frisbee. <laughs> um, but like what, what we see here, I, I think in the, in the in the first part of this movie is Hackman's the character Jack McCann, the gold, the gold digger we see his fundamental disconnect from humanity like he doesn't want partners he doesn't want to be around anyone or anything all he cares about is the, like this 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 maniacal pursuit of the ecstasy of gold of mm-hmm. striking it big and like he's been doing this for years and is like you know has doesn't have much to show for it and there's it's there's just, really a movie
1: of di- it's like a movie of dichotomies there's like the cold and the warm there's the Gold versus flesh is another dichotomy, mm-hmm. kind of presented, and um, rich white people and uh, the black people that work for them on this tropical island is another one. It's
0: very, there's quite a lot of juxtapositions. There's lots of juxtapositions between father and daughter in this movie, between the mm-hmm. father and his um, uh, son in law, played by Rutger Hauer. Uh, but we get to that, uh, we there's like you know, another like moment of just like real like i don't know magical realism i guess you would call it in the scene where basically like a philosopher's stone is like disgorged from the earth in a column of flame as Hackman basically lies dying underneath a frozen tree, surrounded by wolves who are like, you know, just testing him out a little bit in a in a, a sort of prophecy of things to come later in the movie on his life on the Bahama the life in the Bahamas. There's quite a lot of wolves that surround Jack McCann and his life. But this like, the Earth, this
1: like moment was crazy in the movie too, because like the tree does not look no- normal. It's like a witch tree. It's like a set end. Yeah, and the the wolves' eyes have this really I don't know how they did this or if they just used real wolves that were actually starving, but the wolves, like, <laughs> there's a look in their eyes that is really horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Gene Hackman making eye contact with them. And you, j- I was just like, I was genu- genuinely concerned for him. I was like, fuck. But like, it's
0: this mythic moment of like the earth disgorging this pale stone that he keeps with him for the rest of the movie that is like... Evidence of either his his like uh, being favored or like cursed in some way, because you know like that's like what, what sort of um like opens things up for him is like the interve- this sort of divine intervention of this of this stone this talisman which like orders his life and sets it on a completely different path. We like he then uh, you know sort of like uh, trudges into a frozen brothel like he's like he's like an icicle and he just walks into a brothel and he has like a a prior relationship with. Um, sort of like the madam turned fortune teller, and uh, she tells him that like the stone is was given to you. It's your destiny. It's your destiny that everyone pays. And he tells another one of his one of the great line that is like ref- that is repeated over and over in this movie, or a couple times. Is gold smells stronger than a woman? Mm-hmm. And the fortune teller, we see flashbacks of their relationship, and you know just in this scene, like it's just the rhythm of the camera, the edits, the movement. It's hypnotic, and she tells him that you'll find what you're looking for, you know. But after, it's different. Like his luck has changed. He's not an ordinary man anymore. And she, like, she tells him, like, you know, between us, there used to just be like your cock, my pussy. Uh, Mm -hmm. But now, like, that's all been replaced by gold. Like, he only have a lust for gold. Like, not the lust of a man. The only the lust for gold. But your luck has changed, and it's this like prophecy that is fulfilled. As like, okay, Hassel, Like the scene where he actually strikes gold is. So hallucinatory and unbelievable.
1: I was like, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson was fucking stealing from this movie like it was a riot and he needed a new TV or something. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, like the entire sequence of Daniel Plainview finding oil is just pretty much lifted from this, except it's a lot more hallucinogenic and... Visually insane in this, and it's just like it also reminded me of the elevator scene from The Shining, like oh, yeah. the way the blood kind of oh gushes out of the elevators,
0: and except it's just with liquid, pure liquid gold that yeah. And this is all happening, uh, like set to the the, the score is of Wagner's Das Rheingold, so it's this like it's, it's this mythic encounter. Like we see like fire as this primal force, like literally bursting forth from the ground. And then Hackman's character sort of um, falls into a crevice and, like, into this cavern that is just, like, littered with gold dust. And he digs into the wall and disgorges literally a river of gold that, like, washes him away. And, like, he, he emerges from the ground itself like <laughs> like, a, like, a, like, a, like a hedge, like a woodchuck or, like, a groundhog but covered in gold dust. Yeah. But, like, a, as th- this moment of his, like, the, the, the total consummation of his ecstasy, uh, it's cutting back, it's, it cuts back to the, the fortune teller uh, named Frida. And it's in this moment of like his discovery of the gold coincides with her the kind of uh, almost orgasmic and like, like uh, last gasps of her life. And it's almost like that like the, for the prophecy to be fulfilled that like uh, her, his love for women or his love for other human beings has to literally die. mm mm-hmm.
1: And, um... There's the moment when he like finally like fully emerges from the ground and looks back at the gold and smiles and hops around makes me made me realize like, oh, Gene Hackman was born to play like uh, a prospector who who struck gold. He really has
0: that quality to him. Hackman should have said the line concern it in this movie. Yeah. (laughs) This dadgum gold. (laughs) So he strikes it super rich mm-hmm. and uh he returns to the whorehouse in time covered in gold in time to find her dying and like in her last words she prophesies great events happening and the rest of the movie is set in the waning days of world war ii which is like another very important motif and backdrop in this movie of like a, a changing world and like the the great events and the kind of the the course on which Jack McCann, Gene Hackman's life is set upon. And then like we see an immediate, we see like a hard jump immediately 20 years into the future where like 20 years has passed in like one cut. And we now see uh Hackman with his daughter played by Ther- Teresa Russell, Theresa Russell. Um, and they're up in the Yukon and he's sort of like, but they have like a Rolls Royce and they're having a little picnic. And, He's like showing her the old days. And he says in those days everything was every goddamn thing was so hard. And we begin to see like like hints of what will structure the rest of this movie, which is that he is unhappy with her husband or a fiance at this point, but like her husband played by Rutger Hauer. Mm-hmm. And, and in all he fairness, says, like,
1: he is kind of a sh- he is kind of a
0: shit. <laughs> he is a real kind shit. Of of, annoying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um he says, uh, he'll never appreciate you. And he sa- and she says, "I'm not a work of art." And I mean, like, I, there's a lot of like cross cutting between father and daughter in this movie. And I, I, re- I read one analysis of this movie that says that they kind of share the same soul. That there's kind of like a because you know at one point uh, Gene Hackman says to Rector Howard, "You want my soul," meaning my daughter. But like the idea that like in Father and Daughter they kind of possess the same soul. There's a sort of transference mm-hmm. going on there, and they have the same kind of alchemic quality to them uh we can't talk about either of these movies without bringing up theresa russell who it was sort of rogue's wife they had two kids together she was in seven of his movies so a real muse for nicholas rogue and i think what a supremely underrated actress is incredible in both this and insignificance um what did did you make of theresa russell in this
1: movie I thought she was like fantastic and especially in insignificance, I thought she was like amazing. But She's is, so good. There is one scene in this movie that is like and I imagine it's probably Rogue's fault. There is one scene that she that was one of the strangest scenes I've ever seen in a movie and it's yeah. the which we'll probably get
0: to. We'll get. We'll get to the the last quarter of this movie. Is this is an extreme departure from the first three <laughs> yes. quarters of the movie? It becomes a completely different movie in a way that I imagine will be somewhat divisive. Yeah, but so like we go from uh, the Yukon, like another another cut that uh, transcends time and space. We're now in like basically like off the coast of Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. McCann and his family uh, live on uh, an estate called Eureka. In on an island in the Bahamas that that he owns, and we see um, the daughter and her fiance um, or, or her husband, played by Rutger Howard, uh, are on a, a yacht together, and they're young and in love, and uh, nothing could be better.
1: Um, Rutger Howard does have that kind of face where it's kind of hard to tell how old he is at any given point, <laughs> so I was I was a little baffled by by his you know what age he could be, but. They're definitely he's definitely younger than Gene Hackman, who has been aged up since the last time we saw him.
0: So, yeah, he's basically the, Hackman at this point is watching his daughter and her and his son in law through a telescope. His uh, wife is a bit of an alky. She's doing tarot cards and we meet um, his sort of friend and partner. I mean, like he regards himself as his partner, but Gene Hackman certainly doesn't. Uh, played by Ed Louder. And throughout this scene where he's on the sort of his veranda watching them through a telescope, he's wearing sort of a how would you describe the sort of a dress he's wearing? Sort of a. It's like a streetwear kind of. <laughs> it's like a Snuggie. It's like a Snuggie with a hood. Yes, it's a Snuggy. Yeah. He's wearing a, a hooded Snuggie mm-hmm. and he has like a parrot shitting on him. But in his conversations with his wife, I, I wonder if you noticed that he's holding the hanged man card of the tarot. Oh, yeah, which yeah. Which is yeah, like yeah. getting into some of the, the, very, the very witchy energy of this movie. But basically like uh the fractures in his life are the fact that he doesn't approve of his daughter's husband, who is this very louche, kind of dashing but slightly demonic European man named Claude, mm-hmm. who's a, a French citizen. Um but basically all he does is he just has his yacht. That's the only thing he's really into. Yeah,
1: the ultimate European kind of. <laughs> he reminds me of the um the guy that Isabella Johnny's having an affair
0: with in possession <laughs> Yeah exactly. He's into dope and sex yeah. <laughs> um, And then also uh, the Ed Louder character is trying to get him to sign off on a deal to uh, sell part of his island or sell the art island to what we later learn is the mafia played by Joe Pesci and yeah. Mickey Rourke what? Really the crazy Mickey reveal. Rourke film we've done
1: yeah, the fourth Rourke is definitely a fixture,
0: um the movie mindset mascot, if you will, yes, he definitely <laughs> is, and I, I did I have to look up on the uh, the IMD or in my research to this movie. the only quote I got from Mickey Rourke about doing this movie is he said it was quote lousy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I was wondering when um at the very beginning um when it cut to what hard cut to gene Hackman in the like Alaskan wilds, I was like, damn, he was probably pissed about filming this movie. And then after the first 20 minutes, I was like, oh, never mind." He was actually filming it in uh, the Bahamas. He's out in
0: Jamaica and Florida. basically, yeah. where, these, where this movie was filmed. But yeah, like, uh, there's a, there's a one line where he says, if you have a fortune, you don't want your fortune told. And then, um, we see basically Joe Pesci plays a character that's like very, very thinly veiled uh, reference to Meyer Lansky and, mm-hmm. and Mickey Rourke is his lawyer and they, they want to build a casino on his island and they want him to sell, but he has no interest in selling. And he says, and Mickey Rourke at one point says like, well, this guy, he's kind of strange. And the Pesci character says, there's no such thing as strange. There's only a man. Understand a man's desires, you understand the man. Who is he now? find out what McCann desires. And like this is really a question of the movie cuz the whole movie takes place we see in this like the prologue the in the the Yukon part of the movie. But once he gets his desire, like he doesn't desire anything at all anymore. And like the question is like yeah you know, like like who is he now? Like how has he spent the last 20 years of his life after fulfilling the greatest ecstasy he could possibly ever achieve, which yeah. is striking into that river of gold? he's sort of like dead now yeah his life is over basically and he's his,
1: his life is totally stagnant and it sucks and he really doesn't know what to do with himself i think there's a line later that i think sums up the entire movie which i'm sure we'll get to when he's talking to his wife in bed but um i also have um a question for you will what is what was going on with joe pesci's teeth in this, <laughs> do you think? Are those like veneers? What is like it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be like he's wearing, I don't know, there's like something he has a strange tooth thing going on, I'm not sure, but anyways, anyways, and um, yeah, Rourke is his young um Italian lawyer who's Emilio kind of, D'Amato, yeah, Emilio, Emilio D'Amato, um, and he's like the pretty face that, um. Pesci kind of presents to the world to kind of do his evil bidding.
0: Oh yeah, like but in Gene Hackman, like the 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 South Florida mob discovers something that they're not used to dealing with a guy who has all the money in the world and and like no leverage. Yeah, like, you can, like he like they, they can't uh, they they can't buy him out. He doesn't have any reason to sell to them. He can tell anyone to go fuck themselves because he's the richest man in the world. So what do you do in that case when you're the mob? Well. Yeah, there's one thing to do. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, like Pesci has been working with Ed Lauder, who's like kind of like going behind Hackman's back to close out this deal because like he's no dummy. He knows what's going to happen if they don't if he doesn't sell to him. They're both probably going to end up in a fucking oil drum in Biscayne Bay. Mm-hmm. And so in this movie, there are like a repeated like visual motifs of the moon clocks fortune fort like you know fortune telling devices like tarot cards and fire and like i think like magical ritual and alchemy really infuse like every frame of this movie
1: oh yeah absolutely there's uh, um this real elemental quality to a lot of the stuff happening and it's all about like creating gold and then like once you have the power to create gold from anything you're like fucked basically it's like a King Midas tale in that in that respect I guess.
0: Yeah. And how would you describe the relationship between the the daughter and her husband, the Rutger Hauer and Theresa Russell character? Cuz it's like it becomes like basically the plot of the movie. I mean, at some a certain point the movie shifts and really becomes about them, not Gene Hackman.
1: It it really becomes like um Theresa Russell is Obsessed with him and loves him more than anything in the entire world. And he really seems kind of disinterested and not like, well, yeah, disinterested and, um, more, you know, into experiences and very flighty. And, um, you know, I think he's kind of a counterpoint to Hackman in the way that, um, Hackman is obsessed with the gold with gold and, Howard is kind of obsessed with the flesh aspect of, um, ecstasy and pleasure. And, um, he's kind of portrayed like a, a pervert and, uh, but like a sophisticated pervert, um, and a, you know, a, a guy with just real carnal animalistic desires. And she, there's, um, several scenes in which, theresa russell is trying to decide what to wear and asks him like what she wants what he wants her to wear and he always picks the stuff that's like sparkly and gold like she's um his gold almost but like hackman at the beginning he has she's like not really his gold she's just he's like her gold i guess because she's like i love you as a person more than anything but you
0: don't really love me in that way you don't know what you want she she loves she has an all-consuming passion for him that is not really matched by his affection towards her i mean he likes her but then there's like also the question of like does he like her family's money i mean he specifically says to hackman that he never wants to take any anything from him because he doesn't want to owe him anything Mm -hmm. but rogue described the Rutger Rutger Hauer character claude as quote a dabbler this is guy, he's a guy who's kind of a dilettante. He flits about between many things. He's sort of a cad. He has a lot of kind of shallow interests, but he doesn't really know who he is and like who, or like who he wants to become, which is in contrast to Jack McCann, the Gene Hackman character, who I think Theresa Russell at one point says, the reason like no one knows what to do with him or like the reason everyone hates him is because he's like the one man on Earth who knew exactly what he wanted and then got it and didn't need anything else. And like, whereas the Rutger Harrow character doesn't really know who he is or what he wants. So he always feels at a disadvantage to someone like Hackman. And yeah, we see and that he also says, like,
1: the only extravagance he has is his yacht. And with yachting and sailing, there's no like real goal. It's just you sail around. There's no destination. The destination isn't important. Whereas Hackman, his love is
0: gold and he
1: has all of it like basically
0: uh we see this in the dinner scene where uh mickey rourke comes to dinner to sort of uh you know uh, do some do some deals and they all have dinner together and rutger howard is where they're all wearing like like you know t- like a you know a black tie dinner like tuxedos basically but rutger howard has chosen to wear a a shirt that has it, like uh, symbols from the Kabbalah on it. He and he, he, he tries to share his his knowledge of the Kabbalah and like mystic Judaism at dinner. And uh, Hackman says, "What are you a yid?" <laughs> yeah, he gets it at like hype beast. It look it's like yeah. a hype beast
1: shirt with like a Kabbalah like star on it. And he's like explaining the the true nature of knowledge and intelligence and wisdom and like. Teaching to, yeah, he's everyone. like, This
0: point, like, this point to the star is for knowledge. This is mm-hmm. for teaching. This is for seeing, or something like that. Yeah. And to Hackman, this is like, I mean, he sees through this guy's bullshit immediately. He says, like, Yeah. And I think he's actually quoting uh, the Talmud. He says, There's only one golden rule. And all the rest is bullshit. So he's not just being anti Semitic. He actually mm-hmm. maybe knows more about what he's talking about than Rutger Hauer. One golden um, rule. <laughs> yeah, so in Golden Rule, and he says, I don't believe in luck, good or bad, but everyone believes in a little bit of gold, even if it's a wedding band. And Hauer like takes that as like, you know, a very pointed uh <laughs> barb at him. And he tells him He like he he picks a fight with him and says Thanksgiving mode. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, He turns the the whole table over and he's like, you didn't you didn't earn that gold. You just stole it from the earth. You raped the earth for it. Like you didn't earn anything. And there's another thing that Hackman does at dinner where after dinner is over, he hands out a little tray filled with gold nuggets. Oh, this was so cool. And he gives all of his guests just little, little tiny gold nuggets. And when Rutger Howard gets one, he puts it in his mouth and swallows it in front of the entire table to make a point. And he says, it's only gold. Like all things, it'll pass and I'll send it back to you. Like, I'll pick (laughs) this nugget out of my shit and send it back to you. Yeah. And um,
1: it's like really funny because it's Mickey Rourke gets his gold and his he's like oh i can't unwrap it because he thinks it's chocolate it's chocolate <laughs> yeah <laughs> and gene ekman's like no i just like to give out nuggets of gold after um after what dinner a cool party like favor though that would be yeah, awesome that's like sick <laughs> that's like
0: literally james bond villain ass shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and another like uh sort of james bond villain moment like in, in, in the scene slightly before they all have dinner uh Hackman comes home and like his little, his philosopher's stone, he keeps it on a pedestal in like the living room of his mansion. And he comes home at one point and the stone is like glowing. It's glowing. And when he touches it, his fingers are burned. And it's at that exact moment that we get more of this like cross cutting between father and daughter at that moment, like, as he burns his fingers on uh, his, his, this sort of talisman that he has, it's, uh, it's, it's contrasted with uh, Tracy, the daughter, uh, getting fucked by her fiancé upstairs, and it's just, like, in a moment of pain or ecstasy. It's, like, it, it, and, and then in the moment when she's, like, at, at reaching orgasm, he also shows, like, there's a gold chain on the uh, nightside table that, like, falls off, and it's like these golden links. It's like link, you know, a golden link between father and daughter, perhaps being mm-hmm. severed or being transferred in some way. And I'll use this to like just just bring up this, which is I, I mentioned is a major element of both of these movies. The way Rogue, like the the power of eroticism and sex in his movies, is something that I don't think almost any other director I can really compare it to. But, like, sex is a huge part of both of these movies. And, like, you know, famously in Don't Look Now has probably one of the most famous sex scenes of all time between mm-hmm. Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie that people thought was, like, very explicit but also very hot and kind of realistic as well. What is it about sex in and, and Rogue's movies and, like, the power of that? And how does he use it?
1: I think with Rogue, I think his real, like, strength, like you said, is in the visual rather than the dialogue or the audio or anything like that and i think like sex is just the most um visually like you know the most connected two people can be kind of is to have sex and i think that he when he's showing like relationships between people in his movies that's something he's it's just um the best way to show connections being formed or broken or like in the most visual way possible, I guess. I don't know.
0: But I mean, I guess it goes back to like the the power of images to like to to visually arouse or stimulate or to like to conjure a feeling in the audience. And I don't know, I just think it's like, We'll we'll get into it in insignificance, but I think horniness is just like a huge alchemical like alchemical force in his movies. Oh yeah, and it's I like think the he, I fire think he, at the heart yeah, of everything, kind of. I think I think he really channels it um, extraordinarily well, and then we can get in later into the voodoo orgy scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, listener. If you're not, if been, <laughs> if we haven't piqued your interest yet. There is a voodoo sex orgy in this movie, but uh, before we get to it, uh, basically. Things are, th- things are continuing to go wrong in terms of this land deal. Uh, his his friend, Ed Lauder, is, like, losing his mind with paranoia. He's carrying around a golden gun and thinks someone is breaking into his house. Um, and then, like, we get a scene with uh, Pesci and Mickey Rourke where, like, Rourke tells him, like, this guy, look, like, he's, we can't negotiate with him. He's not going to sell. And Pesci says of uh, the Hackman character, it's bad not to believe There's only one God between all of us schmucks. These men are without faith, and this man believes in nothing. How can you do business with something like that? So I have to buy, and he must sell. And we can't allow him to stand in the way of new men who want to build their fortunes. Like he just found his fortunes, and we want to build ours. So he has to go. And, like, you know, Louder is like begging Hackman to see reason. And Hackman just very coldly just brushes him off to be like, you're not my partner. I've never had a partner. And like none of this means anything to me. So it's, it'll all be fine. Just who cares? And the guy's just like, they're going to kill my family, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think at one point he says, um, you, you know what eternity looks like? It's white, but very dark. It's like the desert of snow at night. I've reached the edge of eternity and beyond that edge, the abyss. Nothing once upon a time. I was Jack McCann. I had a name. Once I had it all. Now I just have everything. Yeah, that's like, that's
1: I think the line that really sums up the entire movie for me is once I had it all, but now I just have everything. (laughs) He's he's found paradise. He's found like, you know, he's made it. And then he's like, fuck, it's 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 a lot like Citizen Kane in certain ways. Like and there's also yeah, there's a lot of parallels
0: between this movie and Citizen Kane.
1: Yeah there's visual um like cross cutting between the snow globe he has and the philosopher's stone um, in a bunch of scenes and um the scene in his snow globe is um actually of like a gold prospector in the you know in Alaska which is very or thematically interesting kind of <laughs> um especially like compared to Citizen Kane like that's his happiest time is kind of like looking for fucking gold
0: <laughs> and he hasn't had a single happy moment since then yeah no none zero so as the deal with uh Meyer lansky and company continues to go south so does his relationship with his daughter and son-in-law basically uh claude gets a letter back from home in france that his mom died He freaks out. They're having a party at his house and he has like a meltdown where he like slaps his wife because his mom died. Um, But basically like he, it just like underscores his own feelings of inadequacy because he's just basically, like World War II is going on and he just fucked off to the Bahamas to like sail around his fucking yacht and marry some rich girl. But then uh, Tracy, the daughter, uh, takes it upon herself to write a letter to her parents uh, severing ties with them because she can't stand that they won't accept Claude and um of course hackman is very provoked by that and like he storms in on them in the bedroom together and like attacks them and there's mm-hmm. a violent confrontation between them and like that's when he says to to claude he says like i know what you want you want my soul meaning that like i have the thing that every man wants like i ha- i know who i am and i have what i want uh but you don't but like but, but you're but you can only way you can possess that through like my soul is through my daughter which like who shares my soul. And we see a little bit of that at the dinner scene where they both have this kind of uh, knack for doing complicated arithmetic and only their, mo- and, like, just in their head doing, like, mm-hmm. very complicated long division. And so, like, they-, they share something between father and daughter. And he is very uh, possessive of that, like gold. Like, he doesn't want to give away anything that he owns. It's also interesting, like,
1: um, the scene where they like in the scene right before the scene where they're like doing complicated, like 10,034 divided by 137. Um, The scene before that, um, Rudger Hauer tells her like, Oh, uh, time is just numbers. Like everything is just numbers. Basically like the future, the past, like hours, minutes, seconds. And then they, it cuts to the father and daughter, both, Showing like this preternatural understanding of numbers that um, other people don't really have. and um, it kind of it also comes back later on where she kind of kind of reads him to filth in uh, the parlance of our
0: times um, in the
1: um, last quarter of the movie
0: um, and then also. Like like I said, World War II is going on. It's sort of like they they're, they're in this island paradise and they're sort of untouched by it. But you hear snips of it like on the radio. Like at one point, um, Mickey Rourke and Joe Pesci are like paying off some guys to like do the hit on Jack McCann, and you hear like news of Iwo Jima, of the, like the Iwo Jima landing is happening. But yeah, like so they they he sort of severs ties, um, but they like, rekindle with the mom. The mom tells her that, you know, her infatuation with her where her, her husband won't last. Um and then but like a storm is brewing essentially, literally and uh metaphorically. And basically as it sets up the murder that takes place, it's just like everybody has like between the the his son-in-law and the mob and his business partner like, three groups of people have, like, convincing motive and means to kill Gene Hackman. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly what happens eventually. Uh, but, like, okay, so a huge storm hits the island. And then we we see, like, w- what's going on in the island is that, like, Hackman is just, a, you know, taking his motorcycle out in, like, the middle of a monsoon, just sort of trooping around the island looking for Claude to, like, tell him off one more time. But Claude has taken... Tracy has gone away. She's she's visiting her mother uh, back in the states, and he he and his uh, a fellow European uh, pervert have entreated some like officers' wives to go to a voodoo ritual, uh, which basically turns into an orgy. Um, and Hackman gives all the servants the nights off. You know, Hackman's looking to confront uh, Claude. But he's too busy, um, like, yeah, doing some voodoo sex stuff. What what did you make of the voodoo uh, orgy scene in this movie where we see a woman suck off a snake? Mm -hmm. I I love the snake part. I really love the
1: the androgynous kind of, uh, the androgynous twink type character. Priestess. Yeah, that um, Claude makes out with for a little bit. And um, all the. um, I. All the people at the party's faces like becoming becoming his wife's face, briefly. Um, I think like the scene is kind of meant to be like a a contrast between like the natives on the island who are very, you know, alive and Gene Hackman whose life has become like completely languid and like totally stagnant and just like a contrast between the ice in his veins and like the fire in um, you know, the veins of everyone else on the island who doesn't have uh, a trillion dollars. Um, but it really, yeah, it's it's a very interesting, it reminds me of the uh, Angel Heart. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> the Angel Heart voodoo type scene in, in many ways.
0: Yeah, it goes quite a bit further than the Angel Heart scene, yes, too, yeah. which is really saying <laughs> something.
1: Yeah, it's uh, bordering on disrespectful, but uh, you know that's
0: that's that's movies, baby. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, it's like uh, the uh, the invocation of magic in this movie and ritual, and the way he films it, and once again, like the the rhythm and of the uh, of the of the cuts and the kind of power of the image has a very hypnotic effect. But like uh, th- this all comes to a head where. Uh, like they, like he meets on Gene Hackman, meets on the dock where like all the principals sort of come together. And like Mickey and his Mickey Rourke and his goons are there. He tells off Ed Lauder. He tells Mickey Rourke and the mob to go fuck themselves. He tells Claude to go fuck himself. And basically, like, it, nothing matters now. And like, and this is like, I, I really view it as like the, the murder that takes place in this movie, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, the goons break into his house and basically, beat him to death and then torch his body with a weld, like a welding torch they like burn his face off with a welding torch it's it's pretty incredible yeah it's brutal but like it it gets to the idea that like he like he's telling everyone to fuck off because he knows that's gonna happen and basically he's like scripting his own death that this is like there's no resolution to the murder because it essentially is a suicide
1: yeah there's no real other way that this could have ended and the fact that it is basically a suicide is kind of alluded to or not alluded to but outright stated when um in the ending scene the ending courtroom scene which um you know i guess we can say now that we've said that he dies that the basically the last quarter of the movie is a courtroom scene in which rudger howard is on trial for his murder but at one point during the courtroom scene Teresa Russell is like was it a murder? Because like honestly his fate's been sealed ever since he found that gold basically.
0: It's a hell of a murder. They like they stab him brain him with a wrench Yeah um, Rutger Hauer's like burn. are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> and then and then after burning his face off they cut his head off with a machete. So like he's, he's killed about 15 different ways and both like Mickey Rourke Ed Lauder and Rutger Hauer are all in the house when he's murdered and it's never they're like in the room with him basically. Yeah they in the room as he's dying, but like I mean, it's like it's it's a mafia goon who actually does the killing. It's actually the the same guy who plays one of the cops and cruising, a really sleazy New York looking guy. Mm-hmm. But also like with, when they burn his face off with the uh, welding torch, I mean, once again, it's, there's a sort of like there's an alchemy there of like a converting base material into something else. Like his body looks almost like I don't know, like it, like it's covered in feathers, but like it's sort of it's uh like base material is transmuted into something else and that in his death is has like an alchem- alchemical quality to it as well mm-hmm. through the elemental transformative power of fire
1: if you will <laughs> yes exactly yeah, his and um, something else yeah and the snow globe falls it's very i kind of laughed when the snow globe fell because it's like what if citizen kane when he died, what if Citizen Kane died from having his face burned the fuck off with a blowtorch <laughs> by a bunch of goons? C- Citizen Pain,
0: <laughs> yeah Citizen Pain. They should call this movie "There Will Be Gold." Actually, yeah, this movie should be called literally. So, as I, I, so we've we've alluded to it, but like the last quarter of this movie becomes a completely different movie in a way that I, I said I imagine will be somewhat divisive because it comes of it becomes a very weird courtroom melodrama. Where really, what gets put on trial is not like Jack McCann's murder, but the marriage of Tracy and Claude. And it like you know, everyone testifies against Claude, but then like he fires his barrister and becomes his own, uh, represents himself. And then, like to get him, like to to beat this murder charge of which he's facing the death penalty for, he basically has to like get his wife on the stand and be like, "You you really love me, right?" Like I, I remind <laughs> you, you're under oath, ma'am. <laughs>
1: Are you mad at me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: are you mad at me? You're, you, you, d- Did I marry you for the money? I remind you, you were under oath. Yeah, this...
1: I really did not understand what, what was going on, what they were going for with this. I mean, I understand, like, it's like their marriage is being tried, and... But thematically, it's just so strange, and it's executed in a very... It's like a courtroom scene, but without the intrigue really of a courtroom scene and it's very this is i think a lot of the when i say like the acid casualty writing it i don't know i don't i don't think it translates exactly to a courtroom environment because you know you have like rudger howard being like what do you see when you look at me in the eyes and then you have theresa russell being like i see a man Buttoning my frock for me for the first time, and then like the the jury's like not guilty. <laughs> like,
0: what the fuck? I kept waiting for the prosecutor because I'm so like uh, conditioned by Law and Order. Yeah, like, objection, law... Your Honor. Yeah, uh, <laughs> objection. Relevance. Um, objection. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> I mean, I think I think I think what you need to understand about the rather perplexing last quarter of this movie, like the the courtroom melodrama part. Is that I don't think it's really like meant to be taken as like a literal trial. I think it, I think it becomes like, I don't, I don't think what we're seeing here is meant to be taken 100% literally. I think it just becomes like an arena of which like the, 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 that is like a, a proving ground for the souls of two people. It's like, like love and, itself is on trial. Kind yeah. Of. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guilty as hell. But uh, basically, um, like, you know, under oath, uh, uh, Tracy, um, like, tell, tells her husband that, like, how could you be guilty of murder? Like, you can't kill anyone. You couldn't kill my father. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't kill a fly, basically. Like, you're just, like, you don't have it in you. Like, because you, you're not my dad. Like, my dad was a killer. He could kill someone, but you, you, you can't. And he says, uh, she says, he died in the winter of 1925 when he found the gold. He could never share it with anyone. His joy died that day. He was like a man struck by lightning—a moment of rapture followed by decades of despair. He died in 1925, and he just needed someone to finish himself off. And I think also, like, like the blackening of his body and the, his death also sort of like looks like he was struck by lightning. It's this kind of this striking that gold is that like one to billion thing that's like the equivalent to being struck by lightning, but it kills you when you when you touch it. Mm-hmm. So basically. Um, <laughs> Uh, the last thing the prosecutor says is, like, um, the defendant was packing his bags the night of the murder. What is? It? How do you, what do you make of that, uh, wife? And before she gets a chance to answer, uh, his not guilty verdict is, like, interrupted by uh, World War II ending. Yeah. And the atomic bombs being dropped on uh, Hiroshima, the Japan surrendering, like, VJ Day happening, and the streets break out in celebration. But once again, it gets back to, like, uh, the prophecy of great events happening, uh, we see Pesci hearing the news of the atomic bombs over the radio. And he says, now there has to be some changes. Mm-hmm. Claude is acquitted of murder, just like the the real life case where the, um, the son-in-law of the, the real life version of this is also acquitted of this murder. Um, and then we get like to see, you know, Claude and Tracy, they're at Eureka. He's been deported from the country because he's a man of low moral character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, you know, <laughs> taking officers, wives to voodoo sex rituals and whatnot. So he's got to yeah. go. But, Basically, they're having dinner together and they're back to being young, hot, rich and in love. Here's to us. And Claude says, I suppose I can say now that I nearly died in the war. (laughs) He has a a war story to tell because he was facing uh, the hangman for uh, the death of his father-in-law. And it's let the good times roll. They're just going to have a damn good time. But then Claude walks away like they're going to they're going to go off together. But he walks away and he looks at himself in the mirror. And he says, I knew it would be you, and leaves her. And then, mm-hmm. like, the last scene is him, you know, rowing out to his yacht, and she's watching him leave and is heartbroken. But it's, I, I think you have to understand the last quarter of this movie is that Rogue really thinks with his eyes and, like, he, like it's, it's what he's showing you. Because, like, when, when, they're, when he is cross examining his wife in the courtroom, it's a full courtroom. But it's like they're the only ones there. They yeah. become sort of bathed in light and everyone else sort of recedes to the to the periphery. And I, I really
1: love the the thing I kind of loved about the courtroom scene is that she really like it the entire movie he's kind of dominating her in a way. Um and she's kind of you know, because she loves him and she's like, I your desires are my desires, whatever you want is what I want. Um And then in this courtroom scene, she really, like, dresses him down and is just, like, he seems kind of shocked by it. Like, that she is so, you know, insightful and knows seemingly more about him and their relationship than even he does. And it can, you know, she can kind of see... The future, a long way off, and like everything that's happened, kind of a long way off.
0: Well, um, like you said earlier, like she has her father's soul, and like the mm-hmm. future is just a, the the future the past. The present is really just a matter of numbers, mm-hmm, and exactly. and and because like you know he he's a dilettante, like and and like she like her father got the, she knew she knew what she wanted, and she got the one thing she was looking for, which was Claude, and like the ecstasy of flesh. Uh, but whereas like that that passion that interest that need or that drive is not matched in claude and the courtroom scene becomes sort of a like an operating table in which like the truth about uh, a relationship is laid bare between two people and i think the point is that like the reason he leaves at the end is that like no relationship can bear that much truth about itself or like no 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 one person or very few can stand to like really see themselves and that's when like when he looks in the mirror and says i knew it would be you he's sort of seeing himself for the first time and realizing that he's just kind of a pathetic shithead.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, Teresa is, simultaneously doesn't get what she wants, but she's, you know, it's, it's a little hopeful that she might avoid her father's, uh, fate of being, of languishing in this, like, palette of you know being a dog who catches the car and doesn't know what to do with
0: it because there the car goes it's like pulling away again and I think at the end of the day like her passion is still connected to humanity for her people still smell stronger than gold. Yeah. And, and then exactly. like that's the difference between her and her father. And I don't like there's another scene where uh her and Rutger Hauer have sex on his yacht. But she's like she's completely naked except for like she's draped in all these all these gold chains. She looks like a Xerxes in the Zack Snyder three. Yeah, movie. <laughs> so we got a, a little bit of a mix of both the ecstasy of gold and flesh. But um, just to uh, close things out on Eureka, I found an interview with Nicholas Rogue where he talks about this movie, and I just want to uh, share one quote with him to to wrap up our discussion of Eureka. He writes here. or He says in this interview. According to the Muslims, there are seven heavens, and they're listed and described one by one. And when we come to the sixth heaven, listen to this. The sixth heaven is composed of ruby and garnet and is presided over by Moses. Here dwells the guardian angel of heaven and the sixth. The seventh heaven is formed of divine light beyond the power of the tongue to describe and is ruled by Abraham. Each inhabitant is bigger than the whole earth, and with 70,000 heads, each head 70,000 miles, each mouth 70,000 tongues, and each tongue speaks 70,000 languages, all forever employed in chanting to the glory of the Most High. To be in the seventh heaven is to be supremely happy, to be in paradise, to be in ecstasy. It's rather shattering, isn't it? That really is the story of Jack McCann, Snow and Fire and the Quest for the Seventh Heaven, Ecstasy. Mm-hmm. so that 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 is eureka that is uh fire and ice water and earth it is uh yeah it is the uh the consummation of ecstasy is death essentially all right you want to take a b- b- quick break and we'll talk in significance.
1: yeah absolutely <laughs>
0: We are back and moving on from Eureka to Insignificance. Uh, Now, Insignificance is based on a play by the uh, British playwright uh, Terry Johnson. And the uh, inspiration for this play was uh, the reputed fact that uh, upon her death, in her uh, her possessions, Marilyn Monroe had a signed photograph of Albert Einstein. And that was the jumping off point for this play (laughs) in which... Uh, basically the the grand events of the twentieth century coalesce around the hotel room of Albert Einstein, in which he is visited by Joseph McCarthy, Marilyn Monroe, and Joe Dimaggio in the movie and the play. they are referred to only as the actress, the professor, the ball player, and the senator for you know legal reasons i 'm sure. But provide these impressionistic portrayals of these like mythic figures of the 20th century. But I do love the idea that Marilyn Monroe died having an Albert Einstein signed photo like it was like a, a pizza restaurant in Danny Aiello or yeah. <laughs> James Gandolfini <laughs> or something.
1: I think like the a connection, like the connection between them in like ritual and like the magic of movies, literal magic, is that whereas Eureka is focusing on Kind of the transformative nature uh and like alchemical nature of like you know one man's life and the role of gold in it um insignificance is very fixated on the alchemical nature and transformative nature of one specific real world event that happened and it was the detonating of the atomic bombs yeah. in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that's kind of the you know and it's very. Weirdly, this is, like, the only thing I've ever seen that I th- think, like, oh, this really reminds me of Twin Peaks Season 3, which is, right. like, one of the most singular things ever made, like, but this really shares a lot, it has a lot of parallels with that, and, um, with a lot of, it, it also has a lot of, like, David Lynch-type parallels, like, an obsession with the 50s and, like, Marilyn Monroe and such, um... And it definitely approaches them in a different way, but it really comes together in an insane way in the last two minutes. Which the is... last
0: two minutes of this movie completely changed the movie entirely for me, or like, just, it yeah, opens up it opens up a new doorway of what I was talking about earlier about uh, using images to kind of conjure a gateway to like uh, something beyond the veil of this life, and we we will get to that because like once again like similar to the end of eureka it comes out of nowhere it is completely different than everything you'd seen before i would i would say insignificance is probably kind of similar to eureka likely to be somewhat divisive because the tone of this movie really flits back and forth between one of whimsy and utter dread and it's 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 a real tightrope act in this movie but like you know it's like some of this movie is is like you know it's 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 a little bit, you know, charming and funny, but then like with rogues directing it, like everything that you're seeing is just really suffused with like the, the being haunted by the specter of atomic radiation and like the devastation of nuclear weapons and like the guilt that in this fictional version, Einstein feels over what his theory of relativity was uh, put with the uses it was put to. And then also in the title of the movie, insignificance, I think the movie is also about how uh, events and people and, and things in the, like, uh, f- sort of flit back and forth between being significant and insignificant. And, like, and, and the movie is also very much a meditation on celebrity and like who is significant and who isn't. like Who's the more significant figure in the 20th century? Albert Einstein or Marilyn Monroe? One hot New York night in 1953, an incredible meeting took place.
1: She was a famous actress. He was a great thinker. What they learned will tell you everything you need to know about
0: life, death, sex, and the universe, relatively speaking.
1: Everything else is of insignificance.
0: The movie begins. It's, uh, it's a hot night in New York. And the, the opening scene of the movie is the filming of the famous upskirt scene in The Seven Year Itch. And now this movie also stars Tony Curtis, who starred in Some Like It Hot with Marilyn Monroe, and here he is, uh, uh, you know, lusting after a fictional version of her. Who knows? Maybe Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe hooked up for real life. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't. I, I'll look for confirmation on that. But. Uh, We we see like it's literally the guys who are setting up the fan under the street grate to blow up Marilyn Monroe's skirt, and they're like, "Oh boy, I can't wait to see this." And they're like, "Where is she?" Let's see those games. (laughs) And they're like, "I just saw the face of God." Yeah, like (laughs) basically, what I what I like about this opening scene is that like you see so much of Marilyn's, are played by Theresa Russell, playing the actress in this movie, and this iconic moment in movie history and it's also this movie was filmed at the same studio in the UK that the seven year itch was filmed at so there's another little interesting connection there Ooh, cool. but for the guys looking up her skirt and then like there's this big crowd of people and they're all assembled to see basically this the, see some gams to see the hottest woman in the world's dress get blown up mm-hmm. and then her husband uh, the ball player played by Gary Busey in this movie and the one weird bit of casting I don't know if Gary Busey quite works as Joe DiMaggio but We'll, we'll take that as such. Mm-hmm. But what I like about the opening scene of these two horny guys and, like, a whole, actually a whole, a whole street full of horny guys looking at Marilyn Monroe's ass is that, like, that image in the, once again, the power of images, that that image in the seven year itch of, like, she's standing on the subway grate, the, the air gets blown up, her dress flies up, and, you know, you see uh, what well, until that point was just about everything you could see of a woman in a movie. Mm-hmm. I think for me, like, an, a rogue in this movie, that image is as foundational to the 20th century as like the image of like the bikini atoll H bomb explosion. Yeah, exactly. That like that like once again we get back to the sex and horniness. That like in this movie, horniness is the real atomic fission that like drives the 20th century and mm-hmm. the world that we live in today. And like it is like there's the power of a, you know uh, splitting the atom, and then there's the power of uh, seeing a hot lady's ass. Yeah, and who's to say what's more dangerous yeah. or powerful?
1: <laughs> yeah, Marilyn Monroe as kind of a sexual nuclear bomb that yep. destroyed the world in the 20th century.
0: So like we, we, we see our four principal characters. We have the professor character. I is... I really loved
1: um when it cuts to Einstein in his hotel room for the first time and he is basically doing the um thing from I swear this is in a Mr. Show sketch, but um of David Cross looking like um, Einstein and writing E equals
0: question mark on a blackboard, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so yeah, we got uh, we got the actress on the street showing off the gams. Uh, the ball player is sort of looking on disapprovingly. He doesn't like all these, all these uh, horny guys checking out his wife. We've got uh, the professor alone in his hotel room and the senator, uh, played by Tony Curtis, or, our second Tony Curtis movie, which I'm mm-hmm. glad about that. Yeah, and he is, sweating bullets in a bar. Oh, he's just oh, he's pouring sweat. He is and uh, it's a dog of a night. Movie. Yeah, it's a dog of a night in Manhattan. It's a it's a hot, steamy summer night, and uh, we, we we follow them around and basically uh, Albert uh, the professor is or Albert Einstein is staying at the Roosevelt Hotel on Madison Avenue. And uh, he is visited first. I mean, he's visited by all all three of these characters, but he is visited first by the senator, the Joe McCarthy character, who is uh, pressuring him about, you know, the classic, are you now or have you ever been? And he's like, he subpoenaed him to testify before his committee, of which um, the Professor Einstein uh, he's pressuring to testify before his committee about communism and he's uh, the professor Einstein is refusing to do so. And Mm -hmm. they've subpoenaed him because he's uh, the the next morning. He's going to speak at like a world peace conference and you know, McCarthy, he doesn't want any of that pinko shit going down. And he wants, he's like basically like ever since Oppenheimer, everything associated with uh, (laughs) the nuclear bomb, people just think death and destruction, but we need men like you on our side to just basically say, Hey, the U S government is doing a okay. We're fight, you know, we're fighting communism the same way we fought fascism. And like, we just, you, you're our guy and we want to like enlist you for our purposes in the cold war of which the professor Einstein uh, wants nothing to do with.
1: Yeah. He says, um, Oppenheimer, his name is death. You live in the squeaky clean world of theory and no one thinks about death when they think of theory. And which is, um, really interesting. Cause also, um, Later in the movie, when Marilyn Monroe and him are talking, Marilyn Monroe is like, I, I understand uh, relativity. And she says, I know what it is, but I don't really understand it. And there's this conversation between them about how he built the tunnels through which it could be understood. But it's kind of like um, digging the subways. You know where you're going and where you left from, but you don't know how you got there, really. And how Einstein kind of dug those tunnels with regards to the nuclear bomb. It's like really fascinating, and like I don't know. I really like this the script in this movie. It was really cool. Yeah, it,
0: it, it's great. Um, uh, you know, the the senator says to him, "You're the, you're the mommy and daddy of the H bomb, a true child of the universe." And uh, like he's saying, like you know, uh, <laughs> Like, he's like, they call me both like a, a communist and a fascist. Or, but he was like, and then he's like, uh, the senator goes at one point, he goes, oh, he goes, the whole war was a Soviet plot. And he goes, the Soviet <laughs> plot, 60 million Russians got died. And he goes, oh, they're tricky. <laughs> they're tricky. <laughs> yeah. And he also says, like, look, he goes, you're, you're the movie star type. You know, like, you think you're a professor, but, like, you think you're just, like, living the world of science and numbers. But he says, you're a movie star, the type that mud sticks to. So he's Mm -hmm. like, it'll be easy to do this to you because you're a celebrity. And, like, that's what this movie is really about. It's it's about fame and celebrity. So while this is going on, uh, the actress has left the movie shoot, and she's left uh, her husband, uh, Gary Busey, the ball player. She's left him behind to stew and to sort of gnash his teeth. And she's being driven uh, somewhere, but she cajoles her driver to uh, give her his watch, and then stop at like kind of like a five and dime store where we don't know the reason yet. But she goes in and starts buying like toys. She buys like some toy cars, toy trains, flashlights, balloons, and army men. And we go back to this like the sort of affected editing uh achieves of like cross-cutting between two different scenes and showing images from one scene to underscore what's being talked about in another and there's a scene where theresa russell drops a handful of army men into a brown paper bag and that's right at the moment that tony curtis's character is just like oh the russians are tricky they killed 60 million people on purpose because it was like this is their plot all along yeah no one does a match
1: cut like nicholas rogue like or a, a cross cut like him exactly. I mean, like Kubrick gets so much credit for that shot at in the beginning of two thousand one, but um, Rogue has like ten of those a movie basically. <laughs> yeah.
0: So like she takes the she takes the watch from her driver, and once again, watches and clocks are like very much a repeated visual motif in this movie, and the entire idea of time and lost time and trying to regain time. The movie is suffused with these sort of like, once again, impressionistic flashbacks from the life of each of the four principal characters. And like in one scene, we get a flashback to uh, the Marilyn Monroe character as a little girl in, the, in an orphanage. And she has a wristwatch that the other girls sort of like steal from her. And there's a scene that's there's like a, a flash of the scene that's repeated throughout the movie of her lost watch falling into like a, a, a like a, a street train. And this idea of lost time and trying to recover it, like uh, either in the physical object of the watch, but trying to like sort of make sense of the past or regain some sort of Proustian sense of, uh, re- of remembrance. And then for the Einstein character, he has a pocket watch that is repeatedly shown in the movie that is frozen at 8.15, 8.16 a.m., which was when the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. And then you also get flashes of... The devastation of Hiroshima itself throughout the movie, and these very like haunting little vignettes that yeah, um, burning, punctuate like, much of the dialogue, like the burning of the city of Hiroshima. Yeah, and a grand, uh,
1: grandfather clock, like in a pile of rubble in particular, that it keeps cutting back to.
0: Uh, one of like the the three locations in this movie. Uh, one of them is a bar, a midtown bar, at which uh, the senator uh, first gets really sweaty. And and has this dialogue with this guy where he talks about if you're drinking water, you know, according to probability, you're drinking like Attila the Hun or Julius Caesar shit because it's like, you know, it's all connected. Napoleon, you might be a little of his piss in there, but like yeah. Attila the Hun, he's been dead <laughs> even longer. So there's a good chance there's a little bit of his shit in the water. You know, again, like this idea of like history, lost time and that like, you know every atom in the universe is connected in some way, like mm-hmm. <laughs> within the, like the, the small particles of Julius Caesar or the dinosaurs you may be consuming with each sip of water. Uh, mm, taste that, taste that Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, if you, I don't know if you notice, um, at the bar, there is a calendar on the bar. That's like a pinup calendar that features a naked Marilyn Monroe or Theresa mm-hmm. Russell, but it's like all very, it's like sort of, uh, a collage, uh, I that that image was created by the artist David Hockney for this movie. Oh shit. That's awesome. Yeah, but it's just like semi pornographic image of Marilyn Monroe where she's like naked and she has her like her tongue is sort of like, like yeah, sticking out was, of her mouth.
1: I was like is that a real that seems a little avant-garde for a pinup yeah. calendar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And this is like, like a, a real
1: dive bar in like Midtown
0: of the 1950s.
1: Yeah, and um we see you know, there's parallels like cross cutting between that and this stack of papers that Einstein is working on that's just like covered in fucking equations. Um, yeah, like he
0: uh, he is like, uh, he uh, he's on the bed, he's writing E equals question mark. Yeah. He's like, he has all these, all, all these papers that essentially represent like the, his work on the unified field theory of his of life's uniting, work. His life's work. And he's often picking up papers with his feet. Hey, so there's a lot of feet in this movie. Yeah,
1: there's a lot of foot action going on. I think um, a lot of... There's a lot of shots that are identical to shots in the movie Blonde, which I notoriously liked a lot. <laughs> but um, yeah, I saw a lot of stuff. Um, the guy who made Blonde, whose name I'm forgetting right now. Andrew um, Dominic. Yeah, Andrew Dominic. He definitely got a lot from this movie, especially there's one shot in particular of Marilyn Monroe's like bare feet dangling off her bed, which I think is meant as kind of an allusion to her suicide um, and, like, kind of as an acting out of the description of the way she was found. That is, like, a very morbid shot that's in both movies. And I think in this one kind of more represents, you know, the future and the connectedness of all moments and how, you know, time is a flat circle. And
0: So uh, the senator leaves... Einstein after giving him the hard sell about becoming a shill and like you know uh, confessing to his communist sympathies at his at his, at his congressional hearing um, you know he, he says he's not going to do it but then uh, Marilyn drops by the hotel room at three in the morning she knocks on his door and invites herself in and like he, he doesn't really know who she is and she's like really relieved uh, for that but basically she's distracting him from the unified field theory by being hot and You know, she's a famous actress, but like he doesn't really doesn't really know her. But he's very taken that this beautiful woman is like, she's like, I just wanted to meet you. Like, this is the only way that at one point she says that he's in he's in her top three woods. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like an
1: amazing exchange where she's like, you were number three on my list until uh, I found out how old you are. And he's like, and then you took me off. And she's like, nope. And then you went to
0: number one. (laughs) And he's like, okay. We've talked about Theresa Russell uh, playing Tracy in Eureka which I think is a great performance but her in this movie as the actress is really one of my I think one of my it's hard to describe this like what might be one of my favorite on-screen performances. I there's something about it that I find so moving and beautiful and kind of uncanny. It's uh, so her, fantastic. In her, it's in it's her really amazing. Cuz like she's not playing Marilyn Monroe. She's no. playing someone who looks like Marilyn Monroe, who we're meant to, you know, obviously meant to like interpret as being Marilyn Monroe, but like all all the, the writing in this movie, the images, like these are all, as I said, impressionistic portraits of like mythic people in history and like what they represent. And with Marilyn, like we just get like, and also like, but but in that, I think we get a lot of flashes of her humanity as well. And a real uh, charm and niceness to her. Like, in contrast to, like, her rather squalid life. Because, you know, we get scenes of her, like... You know, when she talks about being famous, we get these flashbacks to her, basically, like, showing her tits to boys in an orphanage and then just sort of, like, being uh, cajoled into sex at various uh, auditions and things like that. Mm -hmm. But we see, like, this... There's a charm, there's like a, you know, I, I guess it's kind of a cliche, but like her her bubbly positivity, which comes across, and I think maybe one of my favorite scenes in movie history, the scene where the actress character explains relativity to the Einstein character using the toys that she purchased at the Five and Dime store. Mm-hmm. Oh and my it's just God, like, it's, so good. it's really hard to describe, but like this is really one of these moments of pure cinema where I felt like I was being taken out of the movie and experiencing something else entirely. Because it's this like it's just this really beautiful, nice scene, but it's so beautifully shot. And like the way she uses, like she like uses these toy cars and flashlights to talk about the speed of light. She uses uh, these, she's like, and she keeps saying, now you have to imagine. And she gets to the point where she says, you know, you have to imagine that this room is the whole universe. And she uses like these flashlights and balloons. Like, again, like I, I can't begin to explain relativity to you here, but, it's a really pithy and uh, fascinating uh, uh, sort of demonstration of how uh, the sp- how time slows down and speeds up relative to the speed of light. And, and it's just, again, I'm not going to do justice to like actually explaining relativity. Yeah. But the, the, or the even the scene, and, honestly. Yeah but, yeah but just the beauty and playfulness of the scene and also the sexiness of it too, because she sort of sits him down like it's a strip tease. There's a mm-hmm. lot of scenes of her kneeling in front of him, and it's like shot between his legs of her looking up at him, and the whole thing is just infused, like I said, with this this playful sexiness, but also this kind of like a uh, pr- pr- rather profound statement about relativity and what it means about the universe that we live in. And
1: I, I really, my favorite thing about um, this scene that Teresa Russell like keeps doing is um, she keeps like messing up when setting up the things. Like she's like, oh, I forgot to set this, stand this army man back up. Or there's like a car in the way and she has to like kick it out of the way while she's setting up like other things. It's like very, you know, she comes across as like nervous but also excited to be showing this to
0: Albert Einstein, who um a real, she like a, yeah. a girlish enthusiasm and, mm-hmm. and joy in this scene that I was just like it 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 it's there's something rapturous about it. And really it, go, it goes back to what I said about uh, like image, like sexuality and like visual stimulation. The way he films Theresa Russell in this movie is rapturous, is the word I would use for it. Like it, it the, the camera really worships her body and like the, the the image of what she represents. I mean, look, I mean, like yeah, and, and you see a lot of her ass too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, her her feet, her ass, but like it's just it, she is there there is a fet- there is a real fetish quality to like her her presence in this movie and the way and the way it's shot and then like this is underscored by the fact that while all this is happening the senator is just downstairs in his hotel room looking at skin mags of Marilyn Monroe and getting horny and then uh calls up a a, a pro with a blonde wig who looks like Marilyn Monroe yeah so and basically I can't like, uh, get it up in cries but we'll get we'll get back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> but basically yeah, you got you got you have the senator the ball player and um the professor are all horny as hell for Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. But she's really only into the professor. She's really only into Einstein. And like she just wants to spend time with him and talk to him and I mean like she wants to sleep with him but it, like she doesn't like it doesn't really go there but like uh she's you know she she gets undressed and then of course that becomes a problem when Joe DiMaggio bursts into the hotel room. But
1: yeah, it's um she you get a feeling that she doesn't even know if she actually wants to sleep with him because she's like, um I think she feels that she, like it's
0: expected of her, but like yeah, he doesn't exactly. actually want that from her because like that's the way all men treat her. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. But, but he's sort of also like in in a very nice way, like just sort of really amused, but also very impressed by her explanation of relativity. Yeah. because she gets it right but you know but then she says like she's like I can repeat it like I understand it like kind of phonetically but I don't really understand it and I think the joke is that no one does like
1: Einstein yeah. doesn't really either <laughs> and he becomes kind of disappointed by that but she's like she's kind of like this is like the best conversation I've ever had in my life this, like... <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: So then, uh, back at the bar, uh, the ball player is just you know stewing into his scotch, and then he like tears down the David Hockney calendar and like rips it up into like little pieces, because you know his like his jealousy and like his inability to possess or control this the, the 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 bombshell that he's with, who's like also kind of like and you know this is about the marriage of the two of the most famous people in America at that time. But at the end of the day, I feel like. Marilyn Monroe was still a little bit more famous than Joe DiMaggio, despite being like, oh, yeah. the greatest baseball player of the time in, in 12 World Series or whatever. And the scene where he tells Albert Einstein about all the baseball cards he's on is really funny. Oh, yeah. I love that scene. <laughs> he's like, you know, I could go
1: to the Amazon, a village in the Amazon. They'd be like, hey there, big hitter, sit down, have a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, uh, yeah, like, so the senator is downstairs uh, getting, getting top so crazy he starts crying. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I should have never smoked that shit. Now I'm crying to my Marilyn Monroe Monroe prostitute. Prostitution is a big theme in a lot of the movies we've we've watched thus far in Movie Mindset. I just realized that. It's like, it's the best job you can have if you're a woman in a movie. (laughs)
1: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) All the best characters are pros. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so at, at this point, then we get uh, like Joe DiMaggio starts banging on the door and he bursts in and like Einstein has his pants off because like he says, he's like, I'm going to he says, I'm going to sleep in the bathtub. You know, and he's like, it's quite all right. You you just stay in the bed. I don't want you to go home. It's like four in the morning. Uh, so I'll sleep in the bathtub. So like <laughs> her husband comes in while <laughs> thinking that he she's getting uh, seduced by another psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. And he has his <laughs> pants off <laughs> and he's like, what is going on here? <laughs> And, yeah, she says, like, you know, he goes, if he goes, like, you know, don't you want to see your wife? And he goes, if I want to see my wife, I could just go to the movies. And if I want to see you in your underwear, I can go down the street corner like all the other guys. And and he's like, so you screwed another shrink. <laughs> he screwed another shrink. And he get, he's like, no, like, he doesn't understand what kind of uh, professor he is. Yeah. And we get, like, you know, little flashbacks to, like, his childhood playing stickball and mm-hmm. being abused by... <laughs> Some sort of father figure played by Raymond J. Berry, aka Arlo Givens, in uh, a non speaking part, and also, also Mickey Rourke's best friend from Year of the Dragon. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, Gary Busey also, like, he keeps calling Freud Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> He's talking I love about that. Dr. Floyd. I
1: really loved Gary Busey in this movie. I mean, I don't know anything about Joe DiMaggio except that I've seen Blonde and that. In Blonde, he uh, beats Marilyn Monroe, which is he's much more of a teddy bear type figure in this movie. But um, I don't know. I think uh, Gary
0: Busey really killed it. I don't know. I guess I, I just like I just had a hard time seeing him as Joe DiMaggio, but but yeah, you're right. He, like he, he he is very funny at playing a guy who is just essentially a dumb jock. Like he doesn't he doesn't yeah. know shit about anything, and like he, he is can't very because, like, obviously wearing like a big suit that's like, <laughs> that's meant to make him look like big. Um. But yeah, I mean like you know Marilyn Monroe is always the one that's like stereotyped as being like kind of the dumb blonde, but like I think like you know in the fictional universe of this movie, she's clearly a billion times smarter than her fucking husband who like, yeah, at one point he's like, I'm going to give you to the count of 10 and then I'm going to kick down this door. And she's like, count to 10. Three is the farthest you've ever counted in your life. <laughs> one, and then I love two, um, three. Duh.
1: Later on when um, he's like, that's it. I'm going to count to 10. And he gets to, th-
0: when he gets to three, she's like, try four. <laughs> <laughs> Basically like, you know he he's he's uh, breaking up their little tryst and like he like the his wife is just she gets hot talking about the shape of the physical universe and that's just not something he can ever provide for her so she's looking to she's, she's still going to step out a little bit i need a man who i can talk to about fourth dimensional space time and the ball player ain't going to do that for her mm-hmm. yeah he's he's just an idiot and like they talk about the shape of the physical universe and he's just like all oh, that's bullshit it, it's round. The universe is round, just like the planet. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. He's like, I don't, he's like, you know, thanks to Columbus, we know it's round. It's a circle. Everything's based on a circle. Yeah. <laughs> and this is after Einstein tries to say, well, he's like, imagine a point uh, extended in one direction for affinity. Now imagine that point is folded back on itself and that's everything in the universe. And he's like, I don't know about that. It's just, it's a circle. It's round. <laughs> he's like, it's round. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. It's a ball. Everything's about a ball. <laughs> <gasps> everyone in the each of the principal characters in this movie get like a one-on-one time with each other just a yeah. little bit I, I really yeah. love how like some of them
1: every character has another one of the principles or multiple that they don't that is they're all equally very famous but each one None of them, of them know doesn't... who anyone is. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: When uh the McCarthy character comes back, he thinks Marilyn Monroe is just another prostitute who looks like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio and... doesn't know who McCarthy is. He thinks he's a guy coming out of his wife's room and he's like, I can't yeah. believe this shit again. <laughs> and then the... and they're both like,
1: have I seen you before? Yeah, the senator is like, you look familiar. <laughs> and Joe DiMaggio is like, I'm about
0: to punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and of course, uh, Dimaggio doesn't know who Einstein is. He thinks it's another shrink who's fucking his wife. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we 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 get like little glimpses of their marriage, and that like they're both considering divorce, and also like as I'm sure is detailed in Blonde, uh, Marilyn's rather p- poor health. She's mm-hmm. described as having loose insides, and like she's yeah, like, that part was very quite a bit. It's really upsetting. Pretty, it's pretty nasty. It's pretty upsetting. Yeah. She she can't ever, like, bring a baby to term. And also, crucially, in, in the hotel room, in which 90% of this movie takes place, uh, Picasso's painting of mother and infant on a beach is seen in virtually every frame of this movie in one yeah. way or another. Mm-hmm. It's right over the, the hotel bed. And, you know, I'm mean, like, you can read a lot into that, but, like, I think one of the main things is, like, uh, the actress's feelings of, you know, like, the, the pain she has over being childless and unable to bear children
1: yeah and Dimaggio at one point is like, you know, I get keyed up and I can't i I got so used to getting you know worked up and keyed up before a game I just can't turn it off and then he looks in the mirror and sees the painting and then he like takes a swing like he's swinging a baseball bat like angrily almost it's very upsetting and like he is just filled with anger at seeing this image
0: um so like he, he, he gets her to agree to leave, but like first she goes in the bathroom. And then like, you know the, the professor and the ball player get a little one-on-one time in which he, he, like he tells him about all the baseball cards he's on. And the names of these baseball cards were so funny. I believe one of them was uh, Tip Top Best Baseball Boys Tips and Hubbly Bubbly's <laughs> Baseball Buckets. And he just has all these packs of baseball cards that he opens and like takes the gum out of that starts chewing. And he's like, this guy? Never even heard of this guy. I'm on 13 different cards. One out of every five packs has me in it. And Einstein's like, I once won an award for science. And he's Yeah, my favorite you know. was Joe DiMaggio being like, I'm sure someone knows who you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's like, you've done things, right? He's like, you've done stuff. <laughs> People know you. You got a name. But yeah, he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but he says to him, um, she's bright lights on the outside, but inside she's tore up. And it's it's really mean. It's really it's really upsetting. And then, like while yeah. this is going on, she is in the bathroom looking in the mirror, and has these like another, another one of these kind of like match cut flashbacks to that are like very frightening. Uh, one of them is of her dyeing her hair blonde for the first time, and like in the kind of soap film on the mirror, she draws a pentagram. I don't know what you made of that, but again, once again, it's this kind of like an invocation of a certain ritual power in this Yeah, movie.
1: I also saw it as kind of like she's lo- looking in the... From now on, when she looks in the mirror, she's going to see a star looking back at her and not oh, herself. Oh, right, yes. You know?
0: um, and then like she passes out in the bathroom.
1: Yeah. She has like a dissociative kind of episode, a total breakdown. And then um, DiMaggio kind of brings her out of the bathroom and puts her on the bed. And... Um, Einstein is very concerned, but he tells him, no, she's fine. She just
0: passes out in strange bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that's very, so, it was very upsetting. So Einstein, he goes to sleep in the lobby. And I guess if there's like a fifth character in the movie, it's the the elevator Indian, as he's credited in the movie played by Will Sampson. Who's just, you know, like, uh, you know, it's a movie about sort of magic, myth and fame in the 20th century. you got to have sort of a a, a mystical Indian character. It's probably offensive, but uh, Einstein and him have a discussion in the elevator where he's like, he's like, oh, you're a Cherokee. Like, I met one of your people one time and he says, um, he's like, buddy, he's like, I watch TV and eat hot dogs. I'm not a Cherokee anymore. (laughs) <laughs> and then he says but,
1: you're a Cherokee because yeah. Cherokees believe they're at the center of the universe at all times
0: or like wherever you are is the center of the universe and Einstein mm-hmm. says like I don't want to be in the center of the universe I don't want to be anywhere I just want to be like unnoticed I, don't, I mean he says like and then the the el- the elevator attendant says you're like you're not at the center of the universe but the thoughts in your head will lead you there so like that's what makes you a Cherokee yeah so then it is uh, the next morning uh, we get a scene of the uh, the the elevator guy going to the the roof of the hotel and looking out at like the giant skyscrapers of Manhattan and doing a little a little chant to himself. But it's once again, I I just read that scene as like invoking once again like time significance and insignificance of like this is what Manhattan looks like now. But what did it look like when you know Europeans first you know sailed up the Hudson River? You know what did it look like before? Which is like it's changed entirely, but like also with the threat of atomic warfare, it could just as easily be changed back to something else entirely in the future.
1: Yeah. And there's this also like hearkening to the future in the in the background of the chant. There's this like electronic
0: techno almost beat. Yeah. Um, So the uh, uh, the the senator character comes by the hotel room one more time to uh put the put you know put the screws to uh Einstein and he's there to serve a warrant and he comes in with his goons and he's like you know professor professor wakey wakey or whatever and then he he only to find the actress in his bed and he's like oh he should be ashamed of himself but he doesn't know that it's the real Marilyn Monroe and he's yeah, like you know he's you like, because you're because, the you, know, you could be her, her sister <laughs> yeah <laughs> And she's like, if you, yeah, right. If I lost
1: 10 pounds and was eight years younger, huh? And then he's like,
0: yeah. (laughs) And he has the warrant to collect or like he has, he has, he has, he's been empowered to like basically seize as state property, like anything of a national security nature. So he goes around the room collecting all of these papers that Einstein has been working on. That's his life's work, the unified field theory. And of course, the actress is very upset about that because she loves and respects Einstein. And she's like, you know, you can't take those. And he's like, oh, damn right I can.
1: And my my favorite um, part of this exchange is when um, she's like, don't you understand? Like, this stuff is important. It it describes the shape of the known universe. And um, he's like, what, you think I'm some kind of idiot? You think I haven't considered this? <laughs> I know what this stuff is. I know what it says that it's... Uh, describes the shape of the known universe and i've decided that it doesn't fucking matter
0: (laughs) he just (laughs) knocks over the blackboard yeah and but she's very offended by this and she tries to convince him not to take these papers first by threatening to call the fbi and cia which i thought was very funny and then by offering him money and then he's like well you've appealed to you know my my pocketbook and my authority would you like to try a third option yeah and then she's like okay uh, like, you know, is there something else I can do for you? And he's like, okay, just to be clear, you're offering me sexual favors. And she goes, sexual favor. And he's like, oh, all right. And then punches her in the stomach. Yeah. And it's like, it, it, you know, like I said, a lot of this movie is very whimsical and kind of lighthearted. But there are these moments of like real nastiness and really like really disturbing, upsetting moments because he like punches her in the stomach and then she starts bleeding. Yeah. And she's like doubled over in pain. Uh, bleeding onto the, the the notes and onto the bed itself. Mm-hmm. And he sort of like closes, like slides, there's like a sliding door and he sl- shuts that as the professor comes back to his room. And, you know, and we also get like the the little flashbacks that we get of Joseph McCarthy's childhood. The only ones we get of that is that he was definitely molested by a priest. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he's, uh, Joseph McCarthy is like what he's like because he was molested by a priest. Is <laughs> a very... Um, a very funny, fun theory, I think it's very, it's very the conformist in that way.
0: Yeah. So the Senator threatens him and is going to like, uh, take, take his life's work for the U S government. And then we get back to this moment, you know, the question of significance and insignificance Einstein beats him because he takes this huge stack of notes representing the unified field theory of physics. And shucks it out the window of this hotel room, and we mm-hmm. get like when, once again back to like a truly singular image, is this like very fast zoom out as you we get this like magical shot or this like magical moment of like hundreds and hundreds of the paper just flying out of this window on the corner of this beautiful Art Deco building in Manhattan and just showering the street below. It's like falling on the hot dog vendor down on the street, but it's like similar to like the uh, the gold dust or like uh, dust moat suspended in an air or the fireworks that uh, he uses to underscore a lot of the other scenes that we talked about. It's like this ethereal moment of like in the broad daylight, the, the white of these papers, and they're almost like angels kind of like flying out into the world and drifting down onto yeah. the street. Or his, his theories, this, his theories
1: yeah. coming down and, uh, you know, landing on the... The ground the people below normal people and invariably affecting them
0: but yeah but like what, it's it's, the, it's this like probably the most significant thing in human history is in a single moment transferred like it transformed into something completely insignificant literally yeah. essentially you know but like he wins he beats the senator because like he's, he's not gonna get his dirty hands on this work and then we yeah. later find out that he's done this four times before <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's gotten this far, and he destroys his he destroys his notes every single time, and and he starts again and remembers a little bit more, but he never gets to the end because he's like always trying to stop himself from getting there, and that's why it's it's like he laughs when he does it. He's like, it, it was fun to me. It's funny.
1: Yeah, he he says, um, that's your whole life's. You just lost your whole life's work, and then he looks down at his bare feet, more bare feet,
0: and he says, Yeah, it seems I've lost my shoes too. <laughs> 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 And then we get like, as he's defeated and McCarthy slinks out of the hotel, he opens the door right as Joe DiMaggio is coming in. And it's a very funny story. Busey's like, I can't fucking believe it. (laughs) This again. And he like, he like grabs him by the cuff, pushes him into the room and he's like threatening to beat the shit out of him. And then he's like, professor, professor, please tell this guy, like we're all civilized men here. And he's like, okay, okay. Like he, his business here was with me. It's not, not your wife or whatever. And then he's like, you know, gets out of there by the, the skin of his teeth. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and then he, he tries to leave with Marilyn Monroe. Um, he says, "Hey, look, we can try to have a kid," but then she just and tells it's him really it's over because yeah. she's
1: like she's on the toilet and is has just like bled from her vagina, and it's kind of implied that sort of pseudo
0: miscarriage, like
1: yeah, uh, uh, this very miscarriage, um, imagery, and Marilyn Monroe famously had um two I think two miscarriages and um, or one miscarriage and one abortion forced by the CIA if you're, depending <laughs> on uh, who you believe and you'd be interested in which of those theories the movie blonde takes <laughs> <laughs> um, but she's like really despondent and uh, Joe DiMaggio outside the door is like look we can make things work we can if you want kids we'll have kids and it's like he's saying the exact wrong thing at that moment and you know it's it's really heartbreaking she asks him again it comes back to like in eureka this question of what does someone want and he asks her like what do you want and she's like i just don't want to be here anymore like i'm just like done and it's like really heartbreaking and it's like i think the most heartbreaking one of the most heartbreaking moments in like the whole um, movie is this you know, moment where she's just like, you know, it's we're done, it's it's over, and then Joe DiMaggio kind of leaves and is like, all right, we'll get divorced. And, um, and yeah, I think,
0: like Theresa Russell's performance is sort of in contrast to the other three kind of mythic figures that populate this movie, who like each of them basically are kind of caricatures of like the pop culture imagination of what we think of when we think of these people. But the actress character is the only one that is both a a mythic persona, but also like way more than the other three characters really like becomes a real human being. Like we really see like so much humanity and and, like sort of broken, like lost humanity in this character and like a real like inner life that doesn't come across in the other characters, I think intentionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, So the Senator leaves, DiMaggio leaves and we are left again with Einstein and Marilyn Monroe in the hotel for the climax of this movie, which is like one of the most extraordinary things I think I've ever seen in a movie. I, cry. I literally cried. I was like, whoa, yeah. what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. It, like the first time I saw this, I was not prepared for it. And it left an indelible impression on me. And I, I, I hope you will follow up and do the same with this movie if you haven't seen yeah, it Yeah, if you haven't seen the movie, Stop watch listening it right now, now. Before, we, yeah, yeah. before we describe what happens. So Einstein tells Marilyn Monroe about destroying his notes and throwing them out the window. And she's sort of heartbroken about that because he's like, yeah, it's, it's your life's work. And this is when he tells her that he's done this four times before. And this is now the fifth time. And she says, well, like, what are you afraid of? What are you hiding from? And uh this is it where like he's he opens his his stopped pocket watch and he's looking at the the clock on the hotel nightstand and his watch is stopped at 8:16 and the hotel clock is at about 8:13 but it's still ticking and it's moving toward 8:16. And here is where like he finally lays bare like his horror and guilt over Hiroshima and Nagasaki and he says like you know He's like, we burned children, and there's like, and he's like, like what are you so afraid of? Like, there's nothing worse than that. And he goes, there's, there is something worse. There is something worse. And she goes, what? And he goes, I don't know, but I must not think about it. So like, he's very concerned that like, with, with, with the implications of what relativity has already like birthed into our universe, which is of like, you know, the horror of nuclear annihilation, that he can't go much further than that because people like governments and human beings themselves are just incapable of dealing with the ramifications of something worse than atomic weapons. And as the clock and then she's like she's all dressed up and she runs through some lines from the seven year itch for him and she does this mm-hmm. little performance as he's looking at these two watches and as the hotel clock catches up to 8:16 at it like we see a flash of light and there is again an impressionistic The last two minutes of this movie that take place only in a hotel room are like an impressionistic... Like what Rogue does here is he creates the feeling of being annihilated in a nuclear explosion. And you see a flash of light and everything in the hotel room explodes at the same time. And it's filmed in slow motion and all of her toys, like the the little toy rocket, the car, the balloons, his chalkboard, the books the Mozart uh, sheet music that he'd been looking at for most of the movie, the papers, everything in this room explodes in slow motion. And it's this like this haunting music as it's just like each individual particle is kind of launched into motion in this movie, like in in, in time and space. And we see in this, and like, again, it's very hard to describe in words because like words don't do justice to like the, the power of these images. But we see Marilyn Monroe's body in the seven year itch dress, twirling around, consumed by flame. And her body itself is incinerated down to bones. Yeah. And, and we and see the-,
1: the pictures of her not in the Hockney, like, not in the calendar, but actual fragmented pictures, like laid out like they were in the picture in the calendar. Strewn among Einstein's notes on what's um, presumed to be like a Japanese beach, a peaceful Zen garden beach, and they just all ignite. And meanwhile, that's being cross-cut with this and with um, shots of like the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and like and the the papers like falling out the window, and Einstein kind of watching it from a distance from the bed and. Her body just first, burning. Yeah. When
0: I first saw this, it was again like the harsh contrast between like the the whimsical, lighthearted elements of this movie, particularly in Theresa Russell's very, very infusive and joyful and human portrayal of Marilyn Monroe, and the stark horror of th- this moment of like n- of nuclear annihilation, and the underscoring once again about like the way her body is is, is so rapturously filmed, and then to see it annihilated in such a way that it's like it's both beautiful and just so profoundly haunting is to me like when I first saw this movie it really struck me about like the connection between celebrity and like sex and like the the whole 20th century and like literally the consuming of Marilyn Monroe's body itself by the entire 20th century is that it is literally like reduced to cinder and ashes by like the, the weight of history itself just sort of like Wipes her out and everything else around it, and like again, it's it's really hard to describe. But it is this moment, once again, of like horror and sex and kind of like the explosion of all of these like energies, and like coalescing around this one body and this one person, and having them be annihilated. It's like it's really it's really upsetting. Until everything that you just saw unfolds in reverse. Yeah. What is time, if not relative? What is space, if not just a matter of context? We see as this room, this hotel room and everything in it explode into a thousand pieces, reality itself shattering, like the rogue effect. We see it reassemble it's all its constituent parts whole again. And then Marilyn Monroe is standing there once again
1: and um, looking back at Einstein and puts on her sunglasses and says, bye. Bye.
0: <laughs> and just walks off screen, and, and the credits roll. Yeah, and like Leso, they, it freezes on her hand, like you know, like just coyly, like uh, sort of cocked in a certain way, like frame, fr- like, you know, sort of a, obs- the rest of her body obscured by the doorway, yeah, floating out of by, frame, and like her hand is just stuck there. Credits roll, and joyful was, music plays during yeah, the
1: credits. I was like, my jaw was on the floor. I was like,
0: whoa. <laughs> uh, and yeah, like I, I, I think that really underscores like the the power. Uh, of Nicholas rogue as a filmmaker is like just how unexpected he is. Like how, like, I don't know, like just like the, 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 the true power of the images he shows you and like, and how he doesn't like, it, he shatters reality and allows you to kind of reassemble the pieces for yourself. And like, and in doing so kind of uh, like, I think communicate a, 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 a truth to the individual about like, what is the reality to you? Like, you know, what what does this feel like?
1: Yeah. It really it really did feel like um, I don't know the magic the ritual movie cinema magic of that last scene like really worked on me. I was like, "Whoa, what the fuck?" It
0: completely changes the entire movie. Yeah, I really
1: wasn't sure if I'm being honest if I whether or not I liked the movie up until that point. <laughs> and then that happened and I was like, "Oh, this movie's amazing."
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it it it's a difficult one like both of these movies are very hard to wrap your arms around and i think like they'll probably be like if you haven't seen them before they'll probably be like i would like i said i would imagine them to be probably like the more among the more divisive or difficult movies that we've talked about today but i think if you really give yourself over to the kind of not the like uh, you can't you can't approach these movies like uh, in a in a in a literal sense i think you have to kind of like experience them and kind of like Decide what how you feel like what what they made you feel and what the images like what what the symbols and sort of ritual that he was enacting like what what the purpose of it was and sort of you have to see them to yeah to
1: know you yeah. know it's and it's not about knowing or having any knowledge or anything about them it's about just seeing them with your own eyes and then and just digesting
0: them and thinking about them and you have to you have to think with your eyes. Yeah, to, to exactly. experience a Nicholas Rogue movie like you have to, you have to, if the like, like how he how he approaches filmmaking, I think. So yeah, I know I mentioned um, a couple other Nicholas Rogue movies at the start, but I would say like you could probably like those are easier entry points than these two movies, like particularly uh, Walkabout, Don't Look Now, and The Man Who Fell to Earth, and Performance too. I really love. I love Performance is one of my. It might be my favorite,
1: honestly. I really love because all of his movies really defy genre. Performance is really a fun it does fun things with gender too that I really love. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> and I think like I don't know, I, I regard performance as containing maybe the first music video ever created. The memo from Turner scene in the middle of performance. Oh where they kinda yes. switch identities. <laughs> And it's that it's the, the Rolling Stones song memo from Turner written for this movie. But the Mick Jagger performance in that movie where he becomes the James Fox character and they sort of their identity is kind of transfer between each other is. It's really fantastic. It's, it's so like, fan, It's amazing. Rivaled again, only like by his performance. to describe.
1: Yeah. His performance in Free Jack only. It, <laughs> it almost approaches his fantastic performance in Free Jack. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. He's he's not good in Free Jack, but he's really good in that movie. And uh, the
0: other one that I would highly, highly recommend is Walkabout, which was sort of like Aussie New Wave. I think it's really the movie that put him on the map. But it's about a I would describe it as kind of like a cross between The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Book of Genesis. Yeah, it's about it's about like a, a teenage girl and her younger brother who are like taken to the outback by their father like the middle of nowhere who then just kills himself for no reason and like tries to kill them too. Kind of similar to Huck Finn's old man. And yeah. they are lost in the Australian outback and they are uh, encounter uh, an, a, a, like a teenage Aboriginal boy on his, on his walkabout and they sort of, he shows them how to survive and it's this very, it's this very haunting and meditative movie about like civilization and nature and like time and beauty. And it, it's, it's a really Powerful magical movie and and then and then don't look now is like one of the one of the spookier movies ever made, yeah, don't look now really has
1: bad vibes in the best way I think I don't know the sex scene in that movie it, i really it freaks me the fuck out it's not I don't think it's hot at all, I think it's like scary and like <laughs> I don't know the way it's shot is very like i don't know not national geographic but very. I don't, it's it's upsetting to see Donald Sutherland naked and just go to town <laughs> on someone. <laughs> Uh, um, and also The Witches is a really fun one. Oh yeah th- that is a movie
0: that I had to leave the theater when I saw it as a kid I had to leave the theater because I was too afraid when I because that movie was like rated PG and I was like oh I love Roald Dahl and I, and like, I think I went with like uh, my friend and their parents and I ruined the movie for everyone because I was like I don't know probably six or seven years old and I just could not take it because it was too fucking scary when they take their wigs off and you see their witch faces I yeah, fucking oh my lost God. it
1: yeah that's that's that is a traumatizing a kid traumatizing moment for me that moment was um in the poltergeist when the doll like wraps its arms around the kid's neck <laughs> it's just like <laughs> fuck. all
0: right well let's uh let's leave it there for to this episode uh that was uh nicholas rogue movie alchemist all right till next time bye-bye bye